time for people to figure this out. You know? This leads me on to my, my next question perfectly. I was in the yeah. car today and I think definitely I've like an obsessive nature with, with, with things I'm passionate about. Um, I was in the car yep. today just listening to some music and thinking, theorizing over the potential, what is the next five years going to look like? And yep. I think it's fair to say there are some, please correct me if you disagree. There's some inevitable trends that I think are recurring. Number one, the exponential growth rate of data is occurring at rates that, we, that is unprecedented. It's not linear growth, it's exponential. 90% 90, 90 of the data in the past two years was created. Um, in addition to this, so you have number one, the exponential growth rate of data. Number two, you also have the utility and power of data, which is not yet being really conceptualized and delivered upon. Um, so would you agree, firstly, that those two trends are occurring and almost inevitable? Yes, and like they're here now. I mean, yeah, the, definitely. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of other trends mixed in there sure. um, that, are, that are sort of occurring. But I, and those are and maybe they're more important. And I think those trends deal specifically in the realm of data science directly in response to the data problem mm -hmm. that you're talking about, which is that we're running into the limits of our ability to train models on like one cloud provider. You know, like if I want to train a model on, on AWS, the sheer amount of data coming in won't allow me to do that. Yeah. You know? And so there's this other trend towards what's called federated learning, which is where training is done on device. And those micro models are then merged back to form this sort of master model downstream. But the data stream is just so big, you can't funnel it in to mm. like an individual single system, you know, even if that's on AWS, for example. That's how big the data problem is getting. <laughs> so, I think yeah. from, from an investment point of view, I see some trends which I deem as almost inevitable. Um, and I don't like using closed-minded language like that because I, I really try to be open-minded. But there are some trends. There's this really book, good book called The Inevitables, um, and it looks at trends within society that have occurred, i.e. the internet. The, the, the author basically poses that this trend was inevitable and there's going to be similar trends, including the uprise of data. So from an investment perspective, I'm seeing a few different trends that are occurring that I think are inevitable. And from an investor's perspective, I'm trying to identify the company that I think is going to have first mover advantage and also is garnering long-term competitive moats to ensure that they can sustain growth. Um, so that's at least from my perspective. And we can touch upon that momentarily. First, let's continue to talk about the future. You've mentioned yep. time to value there, which I think is a really interesting proposition. And time to value from, from my understanding at its baseline means productivity improvements, means time being saved, cost being saved. In, an, in a future where, where, where Palantir is really producing productivity improvements, cost and time being saved, what in the world is another organization going to do if they don't adopt Foundry or if they don't adopt a similar system in which is equivalent or better than Foundry or if they don't invest in their own IT system, which once again is either equivalent or better than Foundry. So you kind of have a few different situations playing out, I see at least. Um, and perhaps I'm being once again too naive in this situation, which some people have called me, but I really do theorize over what in the world another organization is going to do if they're not using Foundry, but their competitor is. Let me, let me kind of um, frame it a different way. Okay. So let's, let's take it this way. 85% of all of the data science initiatives out there that are being done by anybody are going to fail. You know, mm. I mean, that's Gartner's research, but let's just take Sachin who would say, uh, 
you know, being gracious that two thirds of all those initiatives will fail among companies that actually know what they're doing. Sachin worked in the energy industry. He's been part of a lot of these wide scale ML initiatives, just like I have. So even if you're generous that like two thirds of them are going to fail, no matter like, like, and, and they're all using their own homegrown solutions, right? So like if two thirds of those are going to fail and they're all using their own homegrown solutions, the question is like, not really like, what do you do if you're not using Foundry is like, the question is, will your business be relevant when you fail? Mm. You know, what is the cost of failure? So like the first question businesses should be asking is like, what is the cost if these AI initiatives fail and my competitor succeeds? Not even like worrying about whether you're using Foundry or not. Okay. You know? and, and that should frame the next question is, can I stay relevant without ML and AI, right? So like, am I gonna be relevant? And most of these initiatives will fail within the next five years. If I look five years out, of the people that succeed, how do I compete with them? And can I actually maintain my relevance as a business if that's, you know, if, if, if they're succeeding with AI and I'm not? If I can, maybe I can limp along. But if the answer is no, and you don't find that out for five years, you're fucked. Like, just give up right now. I wouldn't even bring up Foundry right now. I would just say, <laughs> that's the reality that you're going to face. Like, the winner take most thing that Kathy Wood was famous for saying, I, I think she's actually right about that. She might be wrong mm -hmm. about a lot of other things. She's definitely right about no. that. And if that's the future you're facing and you may not have the ability to recover after failure because your competitors are that much better than you, you really need to consider, again, time to value, right? So like, I just need to fail faster <laughs> if that's the case, right? So like, I know where my, my weak points are. And the only way I know how to do that is with Foundry because mm -hmm. you will spend the next three years trying to build something like Foundry and you won't know you're going to fail. You won't know that you don't, have, you don't have enough data scientists or that your data scientists aren't good enough or your data is still screwed up or whatever until you try and do science on it. And you can't do that until all this other machinery is built. So it's like, you're, you're basically pushing yourself all the way up against to the moment when the ax might fall on you to decide to pivot if you stick with your own homegrown stuff, or at least with Foundry, your time to value is so quick that you can start answering those problematic questions about how you do data science and how you get ML in your, in your organization and how you retool and retrain your people now, today, like literally now and today, you know? as opposed to five years from now or three years from yeah. now. So that's kind of the way I would look at it is like, if the future that's coming says, one, because of increased chaos and, and conflict, uh, two, because we need to move, our businesses need to move at the speed of the data stream, um, that I can't stay competitive if I'm not operationalizing my data and using ML and AI, if that's the, the world we're moving towards, why in the world would I delay like my feedback loop for three years? Yeah. That's stupid. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I have That's a few. The way I look at it. That's the way I sell it when I'm talking to people. And I'm like, every day you delay in getting this feedback loop up is, uh, you know, the chance you're just lowering your odds of success of being a, a successful business in the future. You know? That, so. that's, I have so many questions I want to ask right now, but I'm going to try and <laughs> I'm going to try and, and, and present it slightly coherently. Right. My first right. question, just leading off of that, um, I have a, a potential theory. I don't know if it's correct, but I think there's evidence to point towards it being valid. The idea that organizations at the moment do not want to adopt an invasive holistic solution such as Foundry or Palantir because it's so invasive, because it's so expensive. Yep. Would you say it's fair to say that organizations today um, are, more, are more inclined and incentivized to use one-off custom tools, features, or custom applications when it comes to data? individualistic tools in comparison to an invasive operating system. Would you say, number one, that that's a fair analysis? And number two, when will the inflection point or will the inflection point occur in which organizations realize, okay, we need a holistic tool like Palantir. These individualistic tools are not working. 
So yes, I think 100%, um, they're, they're more likely to adopt smaller, less invasive tools. That just, it's how we evaluate our risk profile. So like, like when you run an IT organization, you have this thing called a risk profile. Basically, they're trying to figure out like what happens if you lose some part of your stack or like you have to lift and shift away from this component and like what is the likelihood that this thing will be unsupported in the future? You're basically calculating the risk of all these various pieces. And when you have one thing, like one thing that represents all this value, it's scary because you basically go like, well, the risk profile is off the charts because if we lose this tool, we're, we're out of business. Yeah. You know? Like, so, but that is actually the way things used to be more like in the past where like, if, if I were to give an example in the um, late nineties, early two thousands, we used, um, I think BEA WebLogic was super popular. WebSphere was another one from IBM. These are like J2E web servers that provided like a holistic infrastructure for your company to do everything you need to do to build an app from the ground up. And they're still out there today. Like J2E is still super popular in the enterprise space. But there's way more open source options. Back in the day, everything was like basically a pay product. They, they did have an open source version of J2E and, and um, Java, of course. But to actually do anything meaningful for your business, you wanted to adopt these pay versions, you know, because it made things really, really easy. But it's holistic. It was like your entire yeah. infrastructure kind of sat on these. And then along comes Amazon. And now we're still in this process of transitioning to cloud native architectures and that sort of a thing. So, yeah, I mean, the, the mentality is keep the risk profile low. You know, which says I'll take lots of tools. And if there's overlap between these tools in the industry, great, because then I can swap things out and I can get more competitive pricing and like lift and shift of workload. If you have one like monolith and that monolith is like your entire business, then yeah, that's problematic for sure.